Welcome to another episode of Out of Character with Jupiter Sanders. I am Jupiter Sanders, and today we're going to talk about modules. And I say it that way because I hate them. They're just awful. So I brought on somebody that also hates them. Not as much as me, probably more. Bryce Lynch. Bryce Lynch has, over the past 10 years, has critically analyzed and reviewed 2,000 modules. He's the number three reviewer on BoardGameGeek. So I brought somebody who really knows this stuff to help me prove that my opinion of modules is absolutely correct. So welcome, Bryce. Thank you. And I'd like to state up front that your opinion of modules is absolutely correct. And the show is over. <laughs> We're done. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I'm doing much better choosing my guests. So I <laughs> make sure I'm always right. So modules. Why do you, why are you reading? Why have you read 2000 modules? Why do you continue to read? Like how many reviews a week do you do? Wow, lots of questions there. So why do I do it? I believe that it is likely that I will buy RPG products. I love RPGs. And therefore, I will spend money on RPGs because that's what you do when you love something, right? When you've got a good hobby like that, you spend money on it. Uh, so if I'm going to spend money on RPGs, then why don't I do something useful with it? In this case, reviewing adventures. Now, there's a whole backstory here about me getting back into Dungeons & Dragons specifically looking for recommendations of newer products and being extremely disappointed with those products, writing down some notes about them and then suggesting to myself, well, if I write down these notes for myself, why don't I publish these notes and keep kind of an online diary, which was then public, which turns into reviews that everyone else can see so that they can get some information about these products that are being released. So why do I do it? I guess it started as kind of an online diary and the blog itself that I run, tenfootpole.org, kind of has a sort of stream of consciousness inner monologue sort of vibe to it. There's a lot of loose connections and so on, a lot of design theory in it on what makes a good module and what makes a bad module. But first and foremost, I'm writing for myself. And secondarily, I hope that people get a lot of use out of both my opinions on whether a module is good or bad, and more importantly, what makes a module good or bad. Okay, so let's also make it clear. The, the types of modules that you've been reviewing are specific to, I would say, fantasy, D&D, &D, right? Yeah, so the vast majority of what I review is, let's say, fantasy adventures, and primarily Dungeons & Dragons adventures. And of those, primarily older versions of Dungeons & Dragons, pre-third edition, and mostly basic Dungeons & Dragons, first edition, original Dungeons & Dragons, those sorts of things. And I dip into fifth edition and Pathfinder at least once a week. And then I have occasional forays into other genres as well. I'll hit a Call of Cthulhu adventure or a uh, modern adventure every now and then. And generally, I have found that what makes a good fantasy adventure is also what makes a good Call of Cthulhu adventure, which is also makes a good Shadowrun adventure or a cyberpunk adventure or the, the sorts of themes about what makes an adventure a good adventure is sort of universal across the system or the genre. It's less about the system and genre and more about how it's written. So let's talk about how it's written then. What are the elements that make up 
a well-written module. And I ask this because I have sat down at a table where I'm sure many people have sat down at a table and possibly run a game or had a GM run a game and went, man, that's a great adventure. You should write that up. And then people are like, yeah, I'm going to write a module and I'm going to put it on RPG and I'm going to sell it. What do they need to think about before they actually begin writing that module up? What makes a good module? There are, I think, four criteria that, or four major criteria that go into a good adventure, a good module, regardless of, of genre or anything else. The first is extremely basic. It has to do with the core sort of definition of what a module is. It, this first hurdle is one that most adventures modules fail to get over, and it's the most important one. And that's the ability to run the module at the table. So these things are played for a DM, and the purpose is for the DM to run them at the table. For players, that seems pretty self-evident. And so the adventure has to be, the module has to be written in such a way that it's easy for the DM to then run it at the table. That means several things, but it means that it's not overwritten, that it's easy to find information, that there's reference information for the GM, and that it's easy to find in the adventure. The way I like to say it is, there's this sort of core game loop in RPGs. And that core game loop is the interactivity between the game master and the players, the sort of back and forth. And if the GM has their head down looking at the adventure module, reading it, then they're not paying attention to the players. They're not paying attention to what the players are saying. The players are faced with some sort of dead silence as the GM is reading the adventure, trying to find the information they're looking for. And then eventually the phones come out, they get distracted and things sort of break down into the, the typical game then. So we don't want that to happen. We want the GM to be able to glance down at the adventure and pretty much instantly, within a second or two, find the information they're looking for, whether it be the room that the adventure party just went into or the cross-reference to the you know, what the spaceship computer is telling them or whatever. Just glance down for a second, glance back up, and continue running the game. That sort of usability of an adventure is the most important aspect of it. And it's what you hear people complain about the most. I have to highlight it. I have to read it several times. I have to take notes. If you have to do any of those things, then it's a poorly written adventure. It's not written for the game master to run it at the table. So that's sort of the first basic pillar. It's the one that most adventures fail to get over. And I think it's probably the, the pillar of adventure design that people pay the least attention to when they should be paying the most attention to it. If you can get over this one hump, then suddenly the adventure is not a sort of craptastic thing that nobody wants to run. Instead, people are able to then run it. It is an adventure module. Then The second pillar is sort of evocative writing. You want the game master, when they read the description of a room or an NPC or a place or, or whatever, to instantly have that idea transmitted into the game master's head so that they visualize it very viscerally and then can transmit that information, therefore, in a much better fashion to the players. And then the third pillar would be interactivity in the adventure. There's this sort of meme, I guess, that old school D&D in particular is about killing things and taking their stuff. Well, combat is sort of the least interesting sort of interactivity that you can have in adventure. 
you want to have role playing, you want to have sorts of puzzles, things for the players to mess with, books, things that they shouldn't touch, but they want to touch, this sort of push your luck. Oh, I want to do this, but I, I'm afraid to do this. I want to open the door, but I'm afraid to. This sort of interactivity in an adventure is an extremely important part of it. And then finally, the pillar that I touch on least in my reviews is probably the one that people pay the most attention to. And I, I call that, for lack of a better word, design. This is things like what's the villain's motivation and is, I don't know, the fish factory close to the river or something like this. It's this sort of logically does it make sense. And a lot of times designers get bogged down in this and spend a lot of time trying to make sure their adventure makes sense, at least to them, when in fact, it's probably the least important part of the adventure. When it's there and when it's there well, you can really tell it's there. But that's only important once you can actually use it at the table once the writing is evocative, and once it's a, actually an interactive adventure. Listening to that, I'll tell you my experiences with modules. I have run maybe three or four modules, Call of Cthulhu modules, and I will tell you every time I've tried to run one, I've either messed up delivery of information because I've misread it or looked at the wrong page that it was written on or, or just messed some piece of it up. Or the module said, the players will do this. And guess what? My players would never do that. They would go somewhere completely different. And now I'm stuck with this module and I have no idea how to bring them back on to the railroad. So how, how can anybody even begin to guess what a group of players will do at a table and then write a module foreseeing every action the players will take and then think or sell it, I'd rather sell it to a GM and say, here you go, here's your ready-made adventure. Just run this, your players will follow it. Everybody will have a great time. So you, you've touched on kind of two things there. The first is sort of the difficulty in finding information, which I completely agree with. That's sort of the ease of use pillar. You know, it has to be oriented towards the DM at the table. And then the second is this sort of how is the adventure written to support the DM in sort of its, its most basic form? Is it a railroad or is it, let's say, a scene or a happening? So I, I think we all understand railroad adventures, right? A, B, C, D, there's a couple of scenes laid out or something. And then inevitably, you're right, the party doesn't do what the adventure designer expected them to do or wants them to do. So how do you as a DM kind of adapt to that? And these are sort of poorly written adventures, these sorts of hardcore railroad adventures. The best adventures are more situations than they are railroads. So Bob the evil necromancer is trying to do this. These are Bob's allies. These are what, how his allies are helping him or not helping him. These are the people in town. These are what they're trying to accomplish and their goals and motivations. These are the places in town where you might go. This is the dungeon where Bob the necromancer lives. So the best adventures are, are, are these sorts of, they're setting up a situation and then you're, you're sort of adding the party to it. So the way I, I kind of like to, to envision it is imagine you've got this sort of junkyard and there are these 55 gallon drums of gasoline open. And then you send a bunch of people in with torches and those people that you're sending in are the party. So you're setting up the situation with all of these sorts of elements 
available in this little setting and then you're throwing the party in. So the important part for the designer is to make it clear to the DM what the motivations, goals, and so on are, provide a sort of rough outline of what the most typical reactions of the bad guy might be under most situations or, or whatever, and then perhaps a little bit of advice on how to adjust the adventure. But ideally, the situation is written in such a way that it's obvious to the game master how to adjust the adventure to the parties never doing what the designer thinks they're supposed to do. So situations, not railroads, and an adventure written to support situations rather than supporting a railroad. You say that's what they should be, but I, I posit to you, modules are railroad gaming at its absolute worst. The vast majority are, absolutely. So at least 90, 95% of everything I review is just crap, just absolute nutter crap. And I, I would respond back to you by saying, and I'm writing, I think, in an area, uh, OSR D&D, old school D&D, that is currently in a resurgence and has a lot of excellent design happening in it. So if 95% of the most avant-garde area of RPG adventure design is crap, oh my goodness, what does Call of Cthulhu or Shadowrun or Cyberpunk or any of these other genres look like? It's, it, it's got to be even worse. So yes, the vast majority of these are terrible. And, and, and it, it's understandable, right? Do we expect people to just be born with this innate sense of how to write an adventure? No, absolutely not, right? You weren't born with an innate sense of how to, I don't know, felt or solder. Why, why would we expect that your first adventure that you've ever written, you're just going to sit down and pound it out? and it's gonna be great. No, absolutely not. You have no idea what you're doing. At best, a designer is copying what they've seen before, but we already know that the vast majority of that is crap, so they're copying crap. Of course we get crap. So Zakar has also kind of brought up another point. It's that a lot of modules tend to put a lot of this background information in that the players may never discover or just choose to avoid discovering or don't even play with. Why is it there? When does a module stop being a module and become somebody's creative writing outlet? <laughs> uh, so uh, yes, I would agree completely. That is a, a terrible sin, the sort of background information, including background information in the adventure. The, oh, how do I want to say this? One admitted once, and I believe it was the Pathfinder people, that the vast majority of the adventures they sell are never actually run. People buy these to read them. So that's a dirty little secret, at least 10 years ago in the, in the Pathfinder community. The adventures that were being written weren't being written to be run. They were being written to be read by people who enjoyed just reading adventures or weren't actually playing games. They got their RPG fixed by reading adventures. So you can see in an environment like that, all of this background information, if your target audience is people who are only reading adventures, that background information makes sense. But for those of us who want to run an adventure, the background information is absolutely terrible. It does nothing but get in the way, especially they include it in the middle of the NPC description or they include I don't know, the Wraith's backstory in, in the middle of his tomb and, and you're digging around trying to find the treasure or the trap and instead you're, you have to wade through all of this Wraith backstory nonsense that is completely irrelevant. So I used to be extremely against this sort of backstory in an adventure, almost all backstory in an adventure. I was extremely dead set against. These days, my views on it have lightened up some and I think it's okay as long as it's 
pushed out of the way and is in, let's say, an appendix uh, or someplace else where it's clear this isn't the actual adventure. It's not part of the adventure. It doesn't get in the way of the adventure or me running the adventure, but it's there if you want to go read it or look at it. Now, there's a little bit of wiggle room here in terms of is this information useful to the party or if they go visit a sage or, or they ask questions in town, um, is this information something that the party could learn about? And, and there's a little bit of wiggle room there. But even if there is wiggle room there, you stick it in the appendix. You don't stick it in the room description or the NPC description or someplace else. Those things are reserved for this sort of active gaming or this gaming at the table information, things that you need to run the game right now. It's not the 600 year backstory of the evil magic user. So before we move on into some actual other questions about how to properly run a module, I think we've bashed actual writing a module. Let's now bash the GMs on running it because we're going to make friends. That's why we're here. So I have a quote from somebody in the without a net community, and I'm going to read it to you and I want your thoughts on it. Okay. In terms of when a GM has it in their hands, this is the perspective of this quote, okay? It's like a bookshelf from Ikea, except as written, this bookcase is frequently missing tabs or pegs or screws. Occasionally, they're missing a board for a shelf, especially bad ones or missing essential structural pieces. A GM should know where to put their own screws as necessary or just take the Ikea instructions and use their own materials with the instructions as a framework. Do you agree or disagree? So it, I think it's, it's a matter of how much do you agree or disagree with that statement. So generally, I would agree. It, it's up to the DM to, again, take the situations that are presented in an adventure and turn it into a living, breathing thing for the players. So, and, and of course, the DM is always free to change whatever they want to in the adventure. So with respect to the DM's ability or the GM's ability to change what's in the adventure and add it, change it and modify it, absolutely, 100%, the DM gets to do anything they want, right? That's one of the benefits of being the GM. But when a designer uses that as an excuse, when the designer says, yeah, but a DM could change that. Hey, buddy, I just paid you $10 for this hunk of crap. Instead of expecting me to change it, how about I give you $10 and you provide me something that I can use right now? So as a sort of means to excuse the sins of a designer, that's an absolutely terrible statement. As a sort of generalized reaffirmment of a DM's ability to change and modify any content that they have. Yeah, absolutely. You can do whatever you want. And I, I think you and I have actually discussed this a little bit, how... You know, you, you paid money for this module and you sometimes feel you have to run it the way it, it has it. It's, it's, it's sold to you as an all-in-one game in a box ready to go. And I think that the problem is if you're, if you're an inexperienced GM, especially, you are relying like a lot on that module. If you're a more experienced GM, you'll kind of know you can loosen the reins on it and just kind of give and take a little bit and adjust as it goes. So to a new GM, do you, you, you're just kind of saying, yeah, you bought this and yeah, the designer should have made it better, but 
they're not because 90% of them are crap. Sorry. So as a new GM, just know that you can, you can toss things, you can rearrange things. If the group isn't following the way the module laid it out, it's okay to change things. It's okay to throw the, the party a bone. Absolutely. And, you know, I would draw an analogy here. Way, way back when, when I was, I don't know, 10 years old or whatever, I got the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons first edition player's handbook. And it's got all these rules in it. And boy, there were a lot of rules, and crazy complex rules, weapon speed and, and armor versus weapon tables and all these things that made the game super complicated. And poor 10-year-old me is, is trying to make all this stuff work. And it's not working. It's too complicated. So I kind of don't use it, but I feel really bad about not using it. And then another book comes out, the Unearthed Arcana book. And that book makes it clear right in the first paragraph that everything in that book is optional. And you can take whatever you want and not take whatever you want. You're the DM. You get to do whatever you want. And that really only hit me very viscerally, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, when I finally figured out that every, this is going to sound crazy, every rule is an optional rule, especially for the DM. You can do anything you want. And learning that, sort of the power that that gives you and the freedom that that gives you to kind of massage the game world the way you need it for something to happen. Not in a railroady sense, not in a kind of quantum ogre DM fiat negative sort of sense, but the ability to take what you want from something and leave the parts that you don't want. And kind of understanding that as a DM is an important growth point for a DM or GM. I've been forgiving you every time you say DM. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's... What was the, the website again? 10footpole.org? Footpole.org. If you go to 10footpole.com, you get to see the punk band, 10footpole, which used to be <laughs> the punk band, Scared Straight, which changed their name because they thought Scared Straight was too close to Straight Edge. <laughs> all right. So 10footpole.org. So for all the rules lawyers that are upset at Bryce's comment about all the rules, any rules can be thrown out by a, by a DM, GM, please contact him there on his site, not me. Okay, ah, that was that was a yeah. PSA for the rules Let attorneys out there. I just don't want them coming at me for what was said. Come here, Huckleberry, <laughs> please. <laughs> so I've I've watched some GMs run modules just as kind of bearing witness at a table. I've watched them run the module, and I've seen players get frustrated with it. I've seen players hit dead end after dead end. And I've seen GMs go, well, you guys just aren't doing what's in the module. You're just not doing it like you're supposed to. And to me, it feels watching it, it, it feels a little adversarial on a GM's part, but it also feels I, I want to blame the GM, not the party. The party doesn't have the power. The GM does. They have the module. They have, they understand the world. They understand the situation, what's going on. They have the background. They have all the knowledge. So for them to go, well, you're just not following the right path. Sorry about your luck. I feel that's a huge fault of a GM. And I really feel GM, you can't run a module and think that, you know, you don't have to improv things anymore. You have a module. I still feel improving as the GM DM is still like a number one 
ability that must be had, even if you have a module that's laying everything out. You have to be able to think on your feet. You have to be able to redirect a party or throw them a bone or, or you know, maybe they should have talked to NPC X to get that info, but they went to NPC Y. Let NPC Y tell them the info then. Does it really mess anything up? Again, though, I see GM after GM just hold that module as, look, it's not in the book. And I want to blame the GM more than the module, but I also feel if those modules weren't marketed, and when I say marketed, I mean marketed as as heavily because in the gaming industry, RPGs make up $45 million a year. So I know part of that 45 million is in modules. I know people are buying modules, not just to read, but to run. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I have to disagree with you completely there. Okay. No, no, uh, no. What am I saying? No, you're you're completely right. No, you're oh, completely okay. right. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, GM, the GM must improvise, right? Uh, the, the sort of, you didn't ask the right question, sort of pixel bitching kind of, of crap. That's inexcusable, right? It's the GM's job to kind of, run the adventure through the, the module, through the adventure. And this sort of, well, it says here that you got to talk to Mike and you talk to, you know, Craig, the guy that was standing right next to him. Well, Mike overheard it, didn't he? And Mike can respond or the DM, GM can drop a, a hint or something. The, the GM must absolutely remain quick on their feet and run the adventure in a way that ensures that everybody has fun. And dead end after dead end after dead end after dead end. If the players aren't having fun with that, then the DM's doing a bad job if, if, that's, if that's what's happening here, right? Mm -hmm. If they are having fun, okay, that's a different sort of matter. They've, they've drifted off. They're maybe, I don't know, they've, they've burned down an orphanage or something and are having fun that way instead of going to the docks. But as long as they're having fun, that's great. But when they stop having fun, and, and I think we all have hit these sorts of dead end things when, when we're playing with a, a GM like this, the GM's not doing the job they should at that point. They should be moving the adventure on. They should be providing these sorts of hooks or, or nods to the party in order to get the adventure moving again. The sort of, you didn't do what the adventure said. Ah, that's crap. That's just an excuse, right? Well, like I said, I, I want to blame the GM, but then do I want to blame the industry as well for producing and marketing these as ready-made adventures that are good to go? I, I mean, wow. If a module is actually going to be effective and good, why is it so structured? Why isn't it just room design or room descriptions, maybe some NPC descriptions and maybe a couple hooks, and you let the GM put it all together as they want? Why is it this planned railroad path that has to be taken? What's the, why is it that way? Why have modules been that way since the beginning? Not quite since the beginning. So there would be a substantial portion of the community that would blame Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, <gasps> so I know, right? Uh, Vampire the Masquerade, <laughs> the original first edition, what it came out, mid 90s or something when it came out. And this sort of focus of an RPG on plot and story and therefore plot and story as told by the dm or gm and the sort of railroad to get the party to follow that plot and story now there are ways to do that again 
building situations rather than railroads in which you can enable the party to still have a free hand in what's going on and still have the sort of story. But if or when the designer writes something that attempts to force the party, the players down a certain path to, you know, have the big showdown with the bad guy on the top of the high rise and by God, that's what's going to fucking happen at the end of the climax of the adventure. Okay. At that point, we've got a railroad. At that point, we've got a bad designer who doesn't know how to write a situation. All they know how to do is write a railroad. So now year after year, after year, after year, after year, everyone is learning how to write an adventure based on the adventures that they've already seen or the modules that they've already seen. And so this all sort of goes back to these sorts of bad habits that developed in the industry that were copied by others and now have been brought forward to 2020. And so people are writing adventures the way that they think they're supposed to write adventures, which is what they've seen before. They don't, you, you don't know what you don't know, right? If you've never seen a good adventure, then you don't know what good information transfer theory is. And how could you then be expected to just come to this out of the blues, struck by a bolt of lightning one day, and suddenly you are the best, most logical, clearest writer ever? No, of course not. That's that's absurd to think. You, you learn by seeing what other people have done. That's normal. That's what normal is. Normal in this environment is crap. It's all crap. So you find these folks get them pointed towards good advice, get them pointed towards good examples, the writing improves. All right. So let's say I've, I have an idea for a module. I've seen modules. I've run modules. I've built my own story now, and I'm going to write it up as a module. I'm going to put it on drive through RPG. But now I've heard this podcast, and I'm like, oh, no. What if my module writing puts me in the 90% of crap? We help. Uh, yes, it already puts you in the 90% of crap. Everybody. <laughs> where, where do I go? How do I make sure I don't end up? What, do I, where, what resources are available to me to help me write a better module? Well, there are none. Uh, essentially, oh. <laughs> I know, right? So there are some relatively good adventures, at least in the fantasy realm, that you can look at. And if you squint, you can learn lessons from them. There is, of course, my blog, which is more stream of consciousness and has adventure design tips in it. There's also a book called Writing with Style, and this is by Ray someone whose name I will remember in a moment. Writing with Style, like an, an, an editor's advice to RPG writers or designers or something. And Ray goes through a lot of examples about how to format your writing in order to make it more efficient and clearer for the party. Things like people who write a sentence, if you open the door, then a trap appears. It's sort of sloppy writing. It's not if you open the door, then a trap appears. There's a trap behind the door or the door is trapped and this happens when you open the door. It's sort of if then statement or, or quantum writing, as I like to call it, the trap doesn't exist until you open the door. So he has a lot of examples on how to tighten up your writing substantially. So Ray will help, this book by Ray will help tighten up your writing. But in terms of, you know, learning how to be a better adventure writer, you can look at the good things. You can look at the bad things. Most things are bad. Think about your own frustrations when running adventures, your frustrations with having to highlight, having to read multiple times, having to take notes, 
the sorts of frustrations about the railroads that appear or, or things, adventure certain as railroads rather than situations. You can subscribe and read my blog, which has design tips in every blog. Uh, I, I explain not only why something is bad, or I, I never not only say that something is bad, but I explain why it is bad and what, what, what the good alternatives are to whatever the bad design choice the, the designer made. Usually it's a lot of profanity, but... I do read your blog. I read a lot of the reviews. I, you and I, again, we've discussed this. I have a very hard time reading them because you, as is, is your brand and trademark, a Bryce Lynch review is not a Bryce Lynch review unless there are a billion typos in it. <laughs> and so I have a hard time reading them because I have a mental red pen fixing everything. <laughs> It's a uh, stream of consciousness diary. Would you, would you, would you correct all the spelling in Finnegan's Wake? Would you tell Carol that Jabberwocky can't have these words because they're not in the dictionary? For shame, Jupiter Senders, for shame. <laughs> I mean, for shame your ego to put yourself in the same sphere. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> yes, you're correct. All right. <laughs> It is an entertaining, and once you get past the, the typos, once you realize that's just, that's the brand, that's the trademark of the review. Once you put that aside and you read the review, there's a lot of good information. And I agree with a lot of the things you mention. For instance, you hate italicized font when it's in giant blocks. So italics is great when it's a word or two words or, or a very short phrase, but there have actually been research papers written about how long blocks of italics make it harder to read. So when someone puts read aloud or giant chunks of text or something else in italics, you're actually making it a pain in the ass for the DM or GM to, to read that quickly and be able to pick up the information. Or whenever you're using a, a non-standard font, if you want to use a non-standard font on a handout for the players, hey, that's great. You know, their, their job is to kind of puzzle out this nonsense. But me, the DM, absolutely not. I want something that's clear and easy for me to read so that I can absorb it quickly, scan it quickly, and then relay that information to the players. Long chunks of italics are absolutely terrible. You said you, you agreed with almost everything. No, I do. You uh, agree with everything. one, I guess. <gasps> Perfect. No, shush. So I think there was one review where you had mentioned, I guess they were looking down a hole into like a, a cavern or a cave and it described what they saw when they looked down. But then later on in the module, when they actually made their way down there, the description of the area was different. So I guess when the, the room descriptions kind of are, or are kind of mentioned in one part of the module, but then when they get to it in another part of the module, the description changes. So I guess continuity is lacking in some modules. Sure. Yeah. So continuity, um, that, that kind of falls into my design category. Did, did you number everything correctly? Do the, do the numbers on the match match the numbers on the adventure key and, and so on? So the sort of very basic things, kind of the same as copy editing, right? Did I spell the word correctly or not? Or, you know, if, if you were to actually build this dungeon or draw it out, does it even make any architectural sense? Like, wait, that could never hit there because of this or, you know, it does have to make logical sense as well. It has to provide a pretext. It has to, it has to have a pretext of sense behind it. But these are not simulationist games. We're not trying to simulate kind of a real world environment. So not enough bathrooms, not enough food, not enough water. 
maybe we're off by 10 feet here or there. That's all okay, right? As, as long as it's mostly, as, as it kind of makes sense, as we get further and further and further into the details, we care or, or we should care less and less about are there enough toilets for a... Yeah, but if I build a dungeon with another level and I don't put stairs in somewhere... Sure. <laughs> Yeah, that, yeah, that's a completely I, different. I, I, I basically yeah. effed up the whole module. <laughs> like, is there a Batman pull somewhere? What's going on? So there are like you have to really make sure it makes just the bare minimum of logic has to be used when you make it. Yeah, right. right. Sort of, and that's kind of almost the same as copy editing. Right? Are the words spelled correctly? Do the I've got two stairways to the next level. On the first level, they're about hundred feet apart. The second level, are they right next to each other? Mm -hmm. Are are they feet apart? I think another point you made in one review, which I I did agree with as well, was missed opportunities. Like they have this great element of their skeleton. Like it was in that review, it was the skeletons are at a table and they were playing dice. Yeah. Do you remember that one? And there was the missed opportunity of you could have let the party like interact with and play a game of dice with them or something but that was just lost the the person that wrote the module just kind of took that interaction away so this is pretty common so if we think about a room and sort of a very bare minimal room we'll we'll build up to your example here and it's got skeletons in it you open the door and the skeletons attack this is kind of the most boring room that you can possibly have all there is, is is combat. There's some skeletons. You open the door. What are the skeletons doing? They're waiting for you to open the door so they can attack you. Okay, very boring. We go a little further, though, and we say, okay, you open the door, and you see a bunch of skeletons sitting around a table, and they're shooting dice. They're playing craps or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's kind of a little more interesting. Now we have this sort of vermissitude of, of, of the skeletons are actually doing something. It looks like there's an appearance of there's a life for these creatures outside of the quantum vent where the party opens the door and, and suddenly slaughter them. So the skeletons are shooting dice at the table. You open the door, the skeletons get up and attack. And that's sort of the situation that was in this adventure. And again, this is sort of the most boring type of interactivity. The monsters attack. Okay, great. Yeah, that, we can always resort to violence as sort of the last uh, solution or, or really ultraviolence. Would, would be the correct thing to resort to. But if you open the door and the skeletons are shooting dice and they motion you over and they've got flagons of mead and they offer you a, a, some booze and they're not hostile or they're not, maybe they're not, uh, they're pushing you some. So they're a little hostile, but not super hostile. And you shoot some dice and then one of them accuses, accuses you of cheating. Now you've got a situation, right? Are you going to try to make nice with these skeletons or are you going to resort to the ultra violence or are you going to push the skeletons through social whatever to the point where they resort to violence on you? Now you've got all of this tension that's involved in the situation. It's no longer just about combat. It's tension. It's tension. It's tension as the situation develops and develops and develops. And then maybe one side or the other resorts to combat. So combat in particular is always something that can be, I, I guess, no matter what else is going on, no matter how intricate your negotiations with the king are, you can always just stab him, right? You can always just say, yeah, fuck this and and, and stab the guy. So you can always resort to that as as sort of the last solution. But when you add these other sorts of interactivity, the adventure becomes so much richer. Do that without a large expansive backstory, right? (laughs) I guess it's also 
be careful how you paint your room. If you really want them to interact in a way, <laughs> don't paint it as the worst room ever full of evilness and make them just want to go kill, correct? I mean, there's a way to kind of balance it because I myself in a game have fallen victim to that, to where the room was painted as a very hostile environment. And well, I just went and swung a hammer and, and killed the enemy or attempted to instead of letting my group talk. But the GM painted that picture a little too excessive. And that's my only defense but I did murder Hobo. Oh, there's nothing wrong with murder Hobo. And that's a, a fine and honorable tradition. Exactly. Um, so you, you bring up a good point, right? And this is maybe the art of adventure designing combined a little bit with the art of how the, the GM presents that room to the party. So if you set up a room, an evil temple, and you put somebody on the altar and the high priest is getting ready to sacrifice them and the party comes into the room, and the high priest says, oh, oh, hang on. Uh, I, I've got, you know, I want to talk to you. Let me, let me finish cutting out this guy's heart and, and eating it first. Well, no, we're, we're going to fuck you up, dude. We're, <laughs> we're, you know, we're, we're going to go thermonuclear on you, right? Uh, so, yeah, what, what did exactly. you expect? Or, or uh, it, you know, the DMs or the, the evil villain starts monologuing. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I know how to stop a monologue, right? You right. stab the guy in the throat 132 times, and then I don't have to listen to the monologue anymore. Uh, so sort of, if you write it a certain way, then the party or present it a certain way. If you're you're the GM, mm -hmm. then the the party's mm -hmm. going to react a certain way, right? So you've got a there's a kind of an art to writing, uh, and that's mm -hmm. the sort of design element that I was referring mm -hmm. to that I, I don't really touch on much because. It's so hard, or, or there are so many adventures just screwing the pooch on the sort of usability aspect of an adventure. So many of them fail at that. It, it just seems, you know, why am I even commenting on the design aspects here when it's unuseful? It's not even so. useful anyway. Yeah, that's this is the least of my worries, the design. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to run I'm, it anyway. Why the fuck do I care? <laughs> so let's talk about, because we don't have much time left. So let's talk about Three best modules that you've read or played or three best written, executed, best executed modules. Best written and executed. So this is a, I get asked this question a lot, and I don't think there are adventures or, or modules that do everything right. There's usually something wrong with them, but there are some that do more things right than others. And I'll point some of those out. And these are likely to be fantasy adventures. Again, there's there's a lot you can learn from them, though, just simply as an information transfer tool. So I would, even if you're not into fantasy, you might check them out just to learn from them. The first is Hyquacious Faults. This was a group effort by several writers that hang out on the Knights and Knaves Alehouse Forum. The uh, Those are, are folks that never stopped playing the older editions of D&D in particular, first edition D&D. So they're pretty hardcore um, about their likes and dislikes. But the, they, they wrote this sort of group adventure, Hyquacious Faults, and it was edited by a guy named Guy Fullerton, who also contributed a substantial amount of content to it. And it's just great in terms of setting up the situations in the rooms. Again, rooms that are situations, not just uh, a railroad room, not just combat, but interactivity in the room. Guy is excellent, one of the best ever 
at this actually design element, again, that I don't usually touch on, but he, he's one of the best ever at, at creating designs that make sense and that you feel very viscerally. The uh, rooms are written very evocatively. The adventure is interactive, more than just combat, more than just role-playing in the in the rooms. And it's it's put together in such a way with its bolding and its use of white space and bullet points and indents, tables and so on, that it's very easy to use at the table. You can glance down at the information and immediately pick it up. Excellently cross-referenced as well. So the Hyquatious Vaults. The second is Castle Zentillon. This is by someone named Gabor Lux. He's a Hungarian, but uh, it's published in English. It is a take on one of the first D&D adventures ever written, uh, Teagle Manor. So he has rewritten it. It was part of a project he was commissioned to do that then fell through. So he tweaked it some and released it. And again, the sort of information design, this or design theory behind it is excellent. This use of bolding, the use of bullet points, uh, white space, in order to convey a brief, quick hit of information to the DM. Sometimes I, I say it, it's like an ice pick. You're, you're, you're jabbing an ice pick into your brain of an idea. It's growing and exploding inside there to the point where you can run it instantly. And he does that with his adventure room descriptions. They're very, uh, they're written in such a way that they're, you, you can feel the potential energy of the room. And he does it in just one or two or three sentences per room. It's really, really excellent writing. So I might, might kind of point to those two as sorts of great information design, information theory sorts of adventures, the use of bullet points and white space and bolding and italics, uh, tables, and so on, so that it's instantly obvious to the DM the information that they're looking for in the adventure. You don't have a third one. Oh, do I have a third one? Uh, let's see. You're putting pressure on me. I am. Uh... For everyone... I want everyone listening to know he had the question beforehand. Okay. <laughs> I, I, but I mean, he knew it was coming. So, so <laughs> I can mention either. So there's a designer called Harley Stroh. He's working mostly on dungeon crawl classics these days. And Harley does a great job with writing a very evocative room description. So he makes up words, uh, words that didn't exist before. An example of that is hyquatious. That's not a real word. And he wasn't involved in that project. But uh, he, he makes up these sorts of words and he puts together sentences. He doesn't use the same old, same old boring adjectives and adverbs like large and big and red and black. Instead, he's, he's digging deeper into the thesaurus and using words that you would not typically use as an adjective or adverb as an adjective or adverb. So very evocative room descriptions and generally anything lately by him is going to be very good. In addition, I might mention some of the works of Matt Finch, in particular, maybe the Spire of Iron and Crystal, which again is very good in sort of a setting up a situation. If you think of a, a in this case, a dungeon, a fantasy dungeon is a situation. It's not really how you think of it. You think of it as a series of rooms and hallways linking them. But Matt does some very interesting things to make it a little more freeform and give the players the ability, if they're smart, to kind of maneuver around and outside of the typical room corridor sort of uh, uh, tropes. So uh, maybe some of the, the adventures by those folks. So we'll be nice. And we'll say, if you want to see examples of what not to do, what modules would be the best example of what not to do? Oh. In other words, uh, which ones are the dumpster fires? 
<laughs> well, most of them are dumpster fires. Uh, <laughs> I, I really, uh, I really can't emphasize enough how bad most adventures are. So, I, I think folks could probably pull out any adventure module that they have and look at it. And now that they've heard some of this, tell where the, the problems are. Can you glance at the page and, and figure out what you're supposed to be doing? If you have to read the page for more than a second or two, or you can't find what you're looking for in a second or two, and, and literally, I mean a second or two, then it, it's badly written. So go to your bookshelf, pull something out. You'll get a great example there. Adventures, League Adventures, absolutely terrible. That's the fifth edition uh, Dungeons & Dragons organized play adventures. The Paseo uh, uh, Pathfinder Adventure Paths, again, terribly written adventures. There's a whole sort of, oh, what would you call it? A, a whole industry of designers who write an adventure once and then publish it for 16 different adventures. Those inevitably are terrible because they don't understand why original D&D is different from first edition, it's different from third edition, it's different from fourth edition, it's different from fifth, it's different from Pathfinder, it's different from Call of Cthulhu. They don't understand what makes an adventure sort of uh, relevant to a specific game system. Uh, they're just kind of doing a money grab and converting it to 16 mm -hmm. different systems. Uh, sorts of things, um, absolutely terrible. And the other thing are, are sorts of not setting expectations correctly. So publishing a, oh, I don't know, a, a guideline of or an adventure, a, a book of tables on how to create your own adventure and then calling that an adventure. No, absolutely not. That's not an adventure. That's that's some other sort of DM aid. If I'm looking for a book of tables, I go buy a book of tables. I'm looking for something that I can run right now at the table. Uh, and that's not a book of tables. So any of these sorts of things that aren't actually adventures. Uh, a good example of that is the seclusium of Orphina the Three Visions, uh, which is kind of a, a big product release a few years ago. Tagged as an adventure, and, and it wasn't an adventure. It's just a book of tables. Well, I got better things to do than roll on tables. If I want to do that, I'd go find a free table someplace and roll on it. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for help tonight. All right, so you're not really going to name any modules by name so they're gonna sure, have to no. go to your uh, blog no 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 they can go to your blog and they can read your reviews and they can surely see <laughs> which of ones course. You and i have a tag for the best that. i have a tag for the worst i also rate all of the adventures i review on a scale of one to ten on <laughs> rpg geek so if you go to rpg geek and look at my username bryce steer lynch you can see my ratings and look at the ones and the tens and the nine we'll include uh, a link to find that book you mentioned, as well as those modules that you said were actually good examples, and as well as a link to your blog, so they can find that as well. And, but you also are on another podcast monthly. Do you want to talk about that? I am. Once a month, I am on Metagaming Moments with DM Benny, a set of Philadelphia, and he is a very big D&D Eberron player. He's DM. Uh, and once a month, the new Eberron organized play adventure comes out and he runs it and we both review it. He records a podcast that lasts a couple of hours and releases it. There's that metagaming moments. I will include a link to that as well. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you wish we did talk about? This is the time where you get to tell me I didn't do a good job. Oh, I, I, I think you did a, a fine job. <laughs> I, uh, you know, again, I might just emphasize that while... I cover fantasy because that's generally uh, the most popular genre 
these days, and I guess has always been. Um, the concepts behind what makes an adventure good or bad, these are, are nearly universal. The information being presented to the game master, their ability to run it at the table, writing that makes you excited about writing, running the room, and uh, the sort of interactivity aimed at the players. These sorts of universal things. They're not just isolated to Call of Cthulhu or Shadowrun or D&D or Pathfinder or whatever. The same sort of how to write an adventure or an adventure module is the same regardless. So you can learn a lot even if your genre of choice is not fantasy. No, that is an excellent point fundamentals to module writing will cross genres of rpgs so do you think just as a wrap-up question do you think if if you play just one kind of setting that it would be beneficial to read modules from other settings do you think that would help or do you think it really wouldn't make a difference i think if you were specifically looking for examples of how to write and how to write something good or, or what bad writing is. So mm -hmm. if you were looking at these things as examples of what to do and what not to do, I think there's a lot of value there. In terms of, you know, as, as a DM sort of running things, I'm not sure there's a lot of value there. I think that horror adventures in particular can hop genres very easily. Uh, so a well-written horror adventure can hop from, let's say, a typical Call of Cthulhu 20s game to maybe Cthulhu Invictus or Dark Age through, uh, you know, Delta Green to Dungeons and Dragons to, to Pathfinder to, to almost any game system. Uh, a bunch of rural hicks in the cabin is a bunch of rural hicks in the cabin. Mm -hmm. And uh, that sort of well-written horror genre hops very well. I'm not sure there are a lot of genre hop mm -hmm. as well. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening to another episode of Out of Character. And we will see you again 